Are you looking to do fun activities at home that promotes creativity, laughter, and quality time? How about preparing recipes that are calibrated for two servings? Hello and welcome to TripCast 360, the podcast of lively banter about travel, tourism, and entertainment. This is Michael Bennett coming from a muggy Las Vegas, Nevada, and I am joined as always by Dave Cumberbatch, who is in the Big Apple hanging out in those nice cool environments where I think the temperature is, what, 85 degrees, Dave? No, I'm in a muggy New York. (laughs) (laughs) So you've got company. Yeah, we had something that happened that was strange here in Vegas. Well, actually, it's not strange for this time of year. It actually rained at my house yesterday. Really? Yeah. What what do you get? Um, One one hundredth of of, of an inch? Uh, Probably not that much. Most of it evaporated (laughs) before it hit the damn ground. You know, know, this is the only place in the world where it's 110 and rain, and then the winds come, and it doesn't cool you off. It actually makes you hotter. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I saw where, was it Phoenix? Hit a record of 116 degrees last couple of days. That actually was that was a record for the date, but that actually wasn't a record for the all time high. Phoenix has been in the 120s before, and as a matter of fact, in the summertime they hang out in the 120s. So yeah, that that was that was just a record for that date. I mean, the all time high here in Vegas is 117. I know we hit that four times last year without going over it, and I think we've come close twice this year already, but we've never gone over it since I've been here. Wow. But, you know, I can tell just from the time that I have been here, the temperature has changed. When I when I got here in 2006 to start taking care of my mother, you know, get 110 and we just kind of hover there. And then over the years, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And then I've also noticed less rainfall. So I think Vegas is warmer than those countries that are closer to the equator. Yeah, it probably is, but you know, this is what happens. <laughs> this is what happens when you're inland. As our guests will attest, who spend a lot of time in San Diego, you know the temperature along the ocean is cool, but once you get inland, it's a whole different ball of wax. <laughs> anyway, um, hey, um, I don't know if you noticed or not, but there's been a bunch of stories coming up uh, the, about Hawaii in particular. Uh, starting July 8th, U.S. travelers will no longer uh, be subject to any pre-travel uh, testing for COVID. No quarantines, no proof of anything. That starts July 8th. Um, and I know that Hawaii was having issues, not with the COVID, so to speak, but they actually were not prepared for the influx of travelers after some of the restrictions uh, went away. I read that as well. I mean, in a destination like Hawaii, that I'm not, I'm not sure what the percentage of dependency they are, but they depend heavily in tourism. But, yeah. like, you, but, but like you said, they should have been prepared. Yeah, I, I don't understand what what's going on over in Hawaii. But yeah, July 8th, they're going to be in a whole different ball of wax, just like we are here in Vegas. Mm-hmm. This place, I got to tell you, it is booming finally. I mean, some of the, you know, I told you I was going to do a story in a couple of weeks. I'm actually going to go to a couple of the buffets in Vegas because buffets are a big deal here. And mm-hmm. I'm actually going to go to the, uh, one of them and see the new procedures they have in place. And then obviously I'll be writing a story about that. But, I mean, we've had massive crowds. The resort world, Las Vegas, opened last week. And I think they said there was like twenty or 30,000 people in the crowd alone. Uh, the buffet at the Bellagio is reopening in a couple of weeks. And this is funny. My gym, where I work out, actually has a huge window that actually faces the flight path to McCarran. I can see the planes flying by my house. I was on the uh, uh, treadmill yesterday. I counted 23 planes in 30 minutes landing. I can't see the takeoff because I'm not that close to the airport, but I counted 23 planes landing. That's a lot of traffic. But it's probably better than Conkton Cactus. 
<laughs> if, you, if you pull a few of those spines out of your ass, yeah, you're right. <laughs> my, my, my girlfriend's mother keeps sending us to the store to buy more cactus to decorate her front yard. And invariably, yeah. I'm the one that has to pick up the, the uh, potted plant. And I come home and I'm pulling out all these little spines out of my, my hands and wrists. That's annoying. Um, yeah. And as you know, for anybody who's listened to this podcast, I spent three years of my childhood in Spain. And Spain is one of those countries around the world that is probably 50% dependent on tourism. Well, uh, as you know, the EU is opening up and Spain is usually Europe's hottest travel destination. So it's usually Spain, Italy, and Greece in some sort of order. And they are now allowing non-vaccinated travelers. Uh, I'm sorry. They are allowing vaccinated travelers into the country for uh, leisure travel. Uh, those of you who do not have a uh, COVID test, you can't go. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how the EU starts to really open up. They still have some restrictions coming into Spain from the UK, but not from the United States. We're one of those that are approved to just go hang out. So if you want to make a trip to Spain, now's the time. You know, I was listening to the news and it's really sad or that there's so many countries in the world that don't even have access to vaccinations. I mean. That is crazy. Yeah, and I know President Biden made an announcement about distributing 500 million vaccines. I think he made that announcement last month to the globe. That's only going. That's not even a dent into what the, the they're going to have to do to get this world vaccinated. So I'm, that's going to be interesting. And lastly, before we get to uh, getting our guest on, have you seen the gas prices, man? <laughs> Listen, the gas prices are killing me. But the temperatures we have here in New York. I have to drive, I have to use my air conditioner. And the gas prices are ridiculous. Yeah, because um, you, you guys have a different system than we have out here on the West Coast um, uh, uh, in terms of how you heat and cool your houses. Um, so for us, like, you know, gas prices spike here in, in the summertime, but it's only coming through one source, NV Energy. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about driving in my vehicle. Oh, that gas. <laughs> oh. Well, let me put it to you this way. I, on Good Morning America this morning, the highest gas prices in the country, no surprise, shock, shock, California, averaging about $4.58 a gallon. Everything in California is expensive. Yeah, walking, <laughs> walk, walking down the streets expensive in California. I mean, and it's funny because I think, and, and I don't know, I think our prices are hovering here in Vegas somewhere around three. Fifty, then they're you know they're like a dollar cheaper than than Southern California, you know. And I lived you know thirty minutes on the border. As soon as I cross over that border, that gas price is going to go up a dollar. That's ridiculous. Yeah, it really is. Anyway, let's get on with today's show. But before we get started, a few show notes as we do at the beginning of every podcast. This podcast, Tripcast three hundred and sixty, is available on every single platform you can imagine, from iHeartRadio to iTunes to Google Play to Spotify. You name it, we're there. But the best place to catch our podcast is on our website, Tripcast three hundred and sixty dot com. We put up a new uh, episode every single Monday, uh, with the exception of this Monday because of the Fourth of July holiday weekend. We're actually going to load it up on Tuesday, but um, yeah, we we put a show up every single Monday. And uh, we have a lot of fun with our show. We're not the traditional boring travel log shows. Our show is meant to be fun and entertaining. And we don't mind a little self-deprecating humor, especially at my expense. But that's OK. Um, <laughs> and uh, we're also uh, running headfirst trying to get our uh, store online. It's uh, become an arduous task, but I'm almost there. So hopefully we'll be have an announcement on that coming up soon. Dave, why don't you give them a little place where else they can find us at. 
me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And uh, I always say it's important. Follow us, like us, message us, and tag us. And as Michael alluded to earlier, come to our website. That's where you get all the great, fantastic deals. That's where you have access to our, to our store. Uh, and there's plenty of information. There's plenty of information there, even if you just want to have a good old fun time and listen to me making fun at Michael and our guests making fun at, at us. It's right there on our website, tripcast360.com. Yeah, they don't make fun at us. They make fun <laughs> at me. Let's get that live straight right up front. Anyway, without further ado, our guest today is Alicia Shevatone. She might have the most catchy website name this podcast has ever seen, dinkcuisine.com. Dink is an acronym, uh, which I will let Alicia explain in just a few moments. She puts creativity and fun into cooking and sharing mouth-watering Italian foods. And for those of you who don't think Italian cuisine is necessarily healthy, by the end of this podcast, you will have a whole different outlook on healthy eating. Her, her book is called uh, My Italian Cookbook for Two, and it's flying off the shelves. And her YouTube channel is quickly becoming a foodie favorite. Alicia, welcome to TripCast 360. Thank you so much. Hi, guys. How are you? We're doing good. And it's such a pleasure that you're on board with this. Uh, how did you come up with the name Dink? Just, just take us on a brief journey to the whole evolution of, of, of Dink cuisine. Oh, sure. Yeah, Dave. Well, you know, I wanted a name that was unique and different and that would, you know, capture who I am as a food personality. But really the life that I share with my husband, Mark, you know, so DINK is an acronym. I didn't make it up, uh, but it stands for dual income, no kids, dual income, no kids. And I specialize in developing recipes uh, with two servings. So for me, it's a perfect name. Uh, so yeah, that's how DINK got started. Dual income, no kids. But my followers really are uh, across the board. Some people have kids, some people don't. Some people have grown children, so a lot of empty nesters. So there's a lot of people who have dynamics who are trying to reduce portion size and not overcook. Uh, so, yeah, but primarily it's all about recipes for two people is what I specialize in. What got you started creating these recipes for two people, like you said? What got you started? What was the impetus behind, behind it all? You know, I'll tell you, um, I've been cooking for 20 years and... Um, what was really frustrating to me when I first started cooking is that most recipes are written for six to eight servings. And my husband and I are childless by choice. So it's, it's just the two of us. And I, pref I love cooking so much that I want to cook all the time. So recipes, standard recipes for me are very frustrating and they actually anger me because I'm either forced to do math in the kitchen and do fractions and cut down, you know, ingredient <laughs> uh, sizes um, for recipes, or I have to cook six to eight servings if I'm following somebody else's recipe. And by the time I realized that um, if I was cooking really what I really wanted to cook, I was eating more than the standard portion that I was supposed to be eating. You know, most people would, if they liked a meal plan, they'll make the six to eight servings, they'll stash them in the freezer. They'll eat them later. They will try to be very intentional about, you know, making sure that they're eating the right amount. I don't. I tend to overeat because it's just me and my husband. And if I have a recipe that was made for six to eight people, I'm going to overeat because uh, I love food <laughs> and I love to eat. Uh, so what I really, what I realized, my my epiphany and my journey is um, that I think there are a lot more households in America like ours 
um, the average household in America is actually 2.53 people. So when you see cooking shows and you've got people cooking for an army or you see caterers, you see restaurant chefs, they're looking, you know, they usually cook really, really big portions. I'm a home cook. So I wanted to be able to speak to people that are like me, you know, everyday cooks who really, really love food. They want fresh food. They don't want to dig something out of the freezer and thaw it out. Who knows what I cooked three months ago? I don't care about something I cooked three months ago. I want something I cooked three minutes ago. So mm-hmm. that's uh, primarily my, my cooking philosophy is cooking fresh, you know, cooking, right-sizing your portions for the amount of people that are in your household. Well, I have a question to ask you on that front because yeah. my, my girlfriend and by extension, her mother, who also lives here in Vegas, mm-hmm. they think that just because I am six foot four, that I eat a lot of food. <laughs> And like this morning, my plate was piled high. I actually had to throw half of it away because I don't, I don't need to eat that much. And mm. the question I have for you is how do you control portion sizes? How do you get that through some, to somebody to quit <laughs> overfeeding me? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's really difficult. And I, I you know, I should uh, caveat by saying, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a dietitian. I actually have a law degree. So my background is more in liberal arts than it is, you know, sciences and medicine. But um, I will tell you that, you know, you, you start to learn, you know, based upon caloric uh, count, carbohydrates, ratio of fats, you know, the, the macronutrients that you're trying to pay attention to. Um, they're, they're different for everybody in terms of how you metabolize food. Um, I've always generally had a relatively slow metabolism and I've had a problem with, you know, with my weight my entire life. I mean, it's, it's a constant battle. Um, for me, it's not necessarily about the amount of food. It's what's contained on the plate. So for me, I realize if I have foods that are generally low in carb, complex carbohydrates, um, you know, even if they're vegetables that are you know, even high carb, carbohydrate, a lot of vegetables and fruits are high carb. But they're, they're carbohydrates that you can metabolize and that mm-hmm. are contain the nutrients that you need for your body. So I don't necessarily look at, at you know, how much is necessarily on the plate. I look, I look for balance. Um, and in my recipes, what I really try to do, and not all my recipes are healthy, let's be honest. I use a lot of cream. I use a lot of half and half. I use a lot of butter. Uh, but these are things that make food flavorful. And I would rather have a small portion of something that tastes really, really good because from a... Um, mm-hmm. A satiety perspective, you know, being um, full is as mental as it is physical. And I, I fast a lot, by the way, too. So okay. uh, once you get sort of the mental portion of things, sort of realize that if I have something that's going to satiate me mentally and physically, I'm eating something that's so good that it's like, I feel good. So it's your portions can actually reduce uh, because you're not eating a whole bunch of stuff that you don't really like, but you're not limiting your portions, if that makes sense. That's that's, that's the problem. (laughs) I like it all. That's the problem. (laughs) (laughs) But I'll tell you, cooking cooking meals for two, there's actually a health element to that apart from what's in the food. Um, When you cook for two and you don't have any leftovers, you're not tempted to go back in the middle of the night and eat and and you are continuously eating. So there's actually a health portion to that, to that style. May I say style? That style of eating yeah. as well. Yeah, it's it was life changing for me. Um, once I realized that uh, if if I if I cook less, I would eat less. And yeah. everybody talks about portion control, and it's 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 very highly intuitive. But our 
from a culinary standpoint here in America, how Americans cook is not calibrated to how we're supposed to eat right. uh, to maintain healthy weight. So you go to the, you know, you and no one enjoys a big salad more than I do. I mean, you know, you go to, you know, diners or, you know, different, um, you know, affordable chains or whatever, and they've got these gigantic salads and they've got tons of cheese in them and all these different things that are, you know, delicious, right? Right. But they're huge portions. And um, I really, what I like to say and, and, and how I try to make people understand is that overeating isn't the problem mm-hmm. for home, home chef. Okay. Overcooking, overcooking is the problem. If you're overcooking and you're making eight servings and there's only two people in your house, what's going to happen to those other four portions? If you're mindful about meal planning, you need to be mindful about meal eating. Mm-hmm. So some people meal plan very, very well. They, they cook the food, they portion them out properly, they stick them in the fridge, they stick them in the freezer, but they don't have the discipline to then eat those portions as they've been portioned out. They'll grab two portions. Right. I'm really hungry today. It's okay, I'll just work out a little harder. So the only way that I've actually found to maintain my health and my husband's health at home is by cooking for two because then you're, you're forced. You're forced into the plan that you made with intention and and mentally being satisfied with that because you're cooking something that's delicious. So it is that there's a, a definite health component to it. Dave, you're absolutely right. Yeah. yeah that, that that your initial response about planning, and I, I always laugh because it's like, you know, the it reminds me of the old Mike Tyson story. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> you know. <laughs> If, if you're cooking 400 meals for two people, then that plan's out the window. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it is. It is. And 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 we like to, um, especially cooks who are new at cooking. You know, so 20 years ago when I started cooking, military precision. I would follow recipes to the letter um, because I didn't have the experience to know where I could fudge, especially with baking. You don't want to mess around with baking. Baking, you have to be very precise. There's chemistry involved, right? But but even cooking savory food, once you start to have a little bit more confidence in the kitchen, you start you know, adapting your recipes to your taste and you're doing different things, still, you're, you're still left with a bunch of food if, if, you, if you're not doing it properly. And you really either have to know what you're doing in the kitchen um, to either adapt or do the math or or do different things. And I'm thinking, why have that effort? I mean, why why can't we just sort of right-size our cooking habits for the amount of people that are in our house and make sure that we're actually cooking with intention? Um, and then this way you're not you're not nervous about, well, it might not turn out because it said, you know, two tablespoons of chopped cilantro and I'm using three because that recipe called for three, but I only want two, you know. If, well, you, if you figure it out the way it's supposed to, and you write recipes with that intentionality, then it, it, you know, it's it's more discipline that's built in for you, so you don't have to do a lot of thinking about it. I, I might be asking the most obvious question on the planet, but I need to ask: Why Italian food? <laughs> well, <clears throat> my mother is second generation Italian, and uh, you know, as with most families, you, know, you have your mother and father in one sort of family, you know, is, is more dominant. And for me, that was my mom, you know, my mom essentially raised me and, um, 
we have a, a bunch of Italian traditions in my family. We're from the northern part of Italy, which is Piedmont. Most people associate Italian food with southern, you know, so a lot of red yeah. sauces and, and, you know, big ziti and things like that. My Italian heritage is more food from the north. So it's more, you know, a lot of cream sauces, a lot of butter, a lot of risotto, uh, gnocchi, things that are found in the north because of the things that are grown in the north. Uh, Particularly, that's another thing that people don't necessarily realize about Italian food is uh, the types of grains and flowers that are uh, grown in each region influences the types of pastas and dishes that you find throughout the country. Um, So, but yeah, it's it's primarily because, you know, my mom is a a brilliant cook. She's the still to this day, the (laughs) best cook that I've ever known. Uh, So I try to be just like her. I, I didn't pay your mom uh, any money, so I'm just, you know. <laughs> uh, um, uh, did, did you Americanize some of those recipes? Or are they pretty much still kind of, because I know a lot of times, you know, America's is like this salad bowl of, of recipes from all over the world. And we have a tendency to put our own spin on things when they come here instead of staying kind of true to the culture, yeah. and in your case, Italian. Uh, did you have to Americanize some of those foods or were you able to stick as close as you could to the original Italian thought? Um, I always like to say I love reinventing humble foods in uncommonly savory ways. So for me, part of the fun is reinventing them. It's reinterpreting them, but keeping some of the authentic flavors that I've loved since my childhood. And um, I'll give you an example. So um, have you ever heard of bagnacotta? Bagnacotta is something that's familiar to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bagnacotta, okay. So it's a, it's a Northern Italian yeah. sauce basically. Um, and, you know, Italians have been enjoying bagnacotta since, you know, the, the 16th century. So it's, it's been around for hundreds of years, although, you know, people are really in this country um, have been eating it for maybe the past, you know, 15 to 20 years. Um, so what it is essentially is melted butter, garlic, anchovy. And in my family, we use sour cream because again, being in the North, we, we have a lot more dairy up there. <laughs> um but I reinvented, and, and normally with bagnacata, what you do is you serve it warm and you dip bread in there, you dip crudités, you know, there's different types of vegetables, and it's um, something that's enjoyed typically on the, on, on the pasta course at the beginning of a meal. Mm-hmm. I decided to transform bagnacata into mac and cheese. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I What, what, what time is dinner? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. So yeah, I, I love sort of reinventing dishes, playing with flavors, and I find that that's really fun. And I find that um, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with some of the dishes in my region of Italy, um, it introduces it in a way that's familiar to them, where they're they feel more adventurous to try something new because it, the core of it is something that they know, like mac and cheese. So, um, so I, I try to be authentic. Um, but in a, in a fun way to get people engaged and excited about trying new things, especially something like Blanyakata. I have anchovies in so many of my recipes. Technically, I use anchovy paste, which comes in a tube. Um, and when you say anchovies to people, they think of like having anchovies on their pizza. Like, no, 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 no. I don't like anchovies. I don't like anchovies. But you introduce anchovies in, into something that is rich and luscious. And there's a, an umami flavor there. It's almost like soy sauce. Like they're not expecting it. And they really, really like it. And then you tell them after. Oh, that's anchovies, by the way. 
And they're wow. like, oh, I guess they do like anchovies. <laughs> yeah. On your website, I see you've got some amazing images and some fantastic pasta recipes. Is there any one recipe that you would say, this is my favorite recipe? And if there is, why is it your favorite favorite recipe? Wow, that's a really really good question. Um, I take all my own pictures. So when I stage my food at home, uh, I just take my shots with my iPhone. So really? I, I really do. I do love having pictures that pop. It's very important to me. Um, you know, let's be honest, a lot of pastas, you know, especially in cream sauces, you're dealing with a lot of beiges and, you know, not necessarily visually appearing, right? So appealing. So you have to, you know, put herbs on there and you have to do different things. But um, I would say that there, there is a, a chicken uh, lasagna in a cream sauce that I make that's on my website that is, um, absolutely spectacular <laughs> for myself because a lot of people when they think of lasagna again they're thinking of red sauce they're thinking of ricotta they're thinking of you know the the layers of pasta I um I love to have an interesting play on that where I'm putting you know cream in my lasagna um, ground chicken and flavors that make you think almost of like a um. Uh, a fettuccine alfredo with with a, a chicken breast on the side transformed wow. into a, a a lasagna dish yeah it's fantastic um there's another uh one in the book that i really love it's my uh creamy truffle rigatoni so what you basically do is you take cream and you melt truffle brie into the cream sauce yeah and that's pretty much as simple as it is, but people go crazy. It seems like the most, the simplest recipes are what people love. And they also turn out to be some of the easiest ones. <laughs> so, <laughs> so those are really, really great. Those are two that I, I absolutely love. And they're both actually in the cookbook, Italian cookbook for two. I, I, I noticed that you deal with uh, a lot of special dietary concerns. You have a section on your on your platform for vegetarians. I saw, I think, keto diet mm-hmm. people, paleo diet yep. people. Uh, and I think that's awesome because I think a lot of times we don't get that cross-section of, of traditional foods that address certain health issues. Like for me, for example, I have high cholesterol, very high okay. actually. And they put me on a, on a very robust statin and I managed to get my cholesterol down from 380 to 133 in four months. And I did wow, that. Great. I did that primarily by eating more vegetarian. Which mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a vegetable eater. Anybody who knows me, me and vegetables are not friends. Uh, but <laughs> I did it anyway. So now I'm in the stage of okay, my cholesterol is under control. You know, I've lost 30 pounds. I'm able to work out five days a week now. Now I'm looking for some way to take different cuisines, like your vegetarian section, and incorporating that back into my diet. So that I mm-hmm. get flavor because I got to be honest with you, that stuff I was eating before, <laughs> it was terrible, but I had to do it for health reasons. Um, so did I, I guess uh, that was a long-winded way of me asking the question. Did you set out with that in mind as, as when you were designing your uh, uh, meals and recipes? Yeah, I, I'll say the uh, – so when I started um, eating low-carb uh, foods and, and making low carb recipes was, was in the early 2000s. And, uh, all, 
I'll just be very honest with you that, uh, and this isn't a story that I like to tell publicly, to publicly, but I began to lament the fact that every time I ate, something would have to die. <laughs> and, you know, you sort of reach a point where you're, you know, super, super heavy protein. You're eating a lot of chicken. You're eating a lot of beef. And um, I was, I had a personal trainer at the time who was trying to eat, you know, make sure that I was having, you know, the extent possible, 150 grams of protein a day. And that's a lot to eat. That's a lot, that's a lot of protein for a woman of my size. And it just got to a point where I'm thinking to myself, there, ha- there has to be another way. I need to be able to get my protein, but not necessarily feel like, you know, animals are running, you know, running in herds away <laughs> every time, you know, Alicia wants to eat, right? So, um, and I, I'll, I'll also share that I'm a cancer survivor. So health is very important to oh, me. But you know, you 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 start to you start to research. You know, you you start to look on the internet. You start to to read different books. There's a book that I like by Kathy Frost, and it's called The Veganist, and it talks about leaning into vegetarianism and veganism, and how people um, don't have to make dramatic lifestyle choices. You you don't have to become a vegetarian or a vegan just because. You know, a medical professional tells you, you need to eat healthier. Those sorts of extremes might be warranted um, depending upon your, your medical situation and, and exactly if you're, if you're battling, you know, certain diseases, of course. Um, but we can all make choices. Um, I'll use my hot honey carrots. I have a glazed carrots recipe that's in the vegetarian section of my website. My mom loves those carrots. She asked me about those carrots like once a week. I just visited her um, in Arizona and she asked me to make those carrots. That was one part of our meal that we had where, you know, we actually had ribeyes on the side. I mean, you know, when you, when you, uh, the reason why I wanted to make that, you know, dedicate parts of my website specifically to paleo, to keto, to vegetarianism is because what I want people to understand is you don't have to observe a lifestyle choice and fully immerse yourself in it in order to realize the benefits of those foods. So for me, my personal um, secret to success is moderation, you know, right-sizing my portion, but also having relatively low-carbohydrate foods. My next cookbook that's coming out is actually a keto vegetarian cookbook that's going to be out in October, and that's through Callisto Media, a very big publisher. I'm very, very proud of that because in particular, a lot of people don't think that they can reconcile a low-carbohydrate vegetarian diet with a keto diet. So I have 75 recipes in this cookbook where I'm actually going to walk people through how you do that effectively um, and, you know, different, you know, ingredients that make that easier. So um, so it's, it is very important. It's very personal to me. And, and thank you for recognizing that part of my website. I am very proud of that. Yeah, unfortunately, I probably fell victim to what you just alluded to, where the doctor says you got to eat healthy and do this, this, this. <laughs> um, so I, I, I fell victim to that, but I had a plan in the back of my head all along. I was going to get back down to where I knew my weight and and health was going to be, and then I was going to. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm very disciplined, so I don't have a problem maintaining that, but I also have to in, uh, introduce flavor back into my diet. So, mm-hmm. you know, it, it gets annoying when you have to eat such, but I, that was on purpose because one of the things I didn't want to do is I didn't want to spend the next three years trying to figure out how to lower the cholesterol. I wanted to get it down and get it over with so I can get on with the rest of my life. That's right. Yeah. That's so, right. Yeah. Uh, 
So that that was yeah. that. You said something interesting. I'm going to make a quick pivot here before we come back to food. You have a law degree. Yeah. Is that correct? You were in corporate yeah. America doing all the corporate thing. How was it making the transition to being this, the, the Alicia <laughs> Shevaton that's on our show? I, I mean, a lot of people can't make that transition. It, you know, um, I, I have, uh, I'm actually still employed full time. So I, I, this is, I have two passions and I am sleeping a lot less these days, but I will say, um, I work for a startup company. I have a very, very compassionate CEO who is a personal friend of mine who just happens to believe very deeply in what I'm doing and wants me to be fulfilled as a person. And I think that, um, the primary thing that I would recommend is to surround yourself with people who who believe in the totality of you as a person, that there is more to you than your earning potential, um, no matter what what your profession is. That um, and that is what inspired me um, by by my CEO and, and my family um, and my husband is that people want the best for me and they they see the difference in my spirit and my smile. And when I do YouTube videos or I do events, um, you know, I'm writing my cookbook and I'm up at 3 a.m., but I'm happy to be up at 3 a.m. It's it's a personal choice. It's something that drives me. Making that transition, um, I also, it does also help. I know we talked about organization before the podcast actually started. Um, for me, I am a very organized person, so I have um, everything in its proper place. I have, I, I, I keep myself um, calm by being organized and having different compartments of my life, and knowing, hey, when I'm on and and you know I'm I'm in an executive meeting, uh, you know, for you know my day job, I am completely focused on that. But mm-hmm. I do allow myself when I'm cooking my recipes. I'm not thinking about my my marketing meeting. I'm thinking about that recipe. I'm thinking about how much I'm going to enjoy it. How I can't wait to taste it. How I can't wait to share it with my husband. I can't wait for the next event so I can make this for 50 people. Um, those that's kind of how I'm making the transition. And and for me, it's been very effective. But I am very fortunate that I've balanced in my life. And you said part of it. Part of it. Of uh, of course, from listening to 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 from the conversation, it's about it's about eating healthy as well. But another part of it is about having fun. Oh, yeah. How 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 do you have fun with someone who's just not getting it in terms of the cooking? I'm referring to <laughs> like you know, me. He's I, talking I, about me. <laughs> I was ta- I was talking about Michael. You know, so I. <laughs> I want you to give my partner some advice. You know, how do you? And a glass of wine would help. <laughs> how does it happen? It helps me. <laughs> that helps me. That helps me. Yeah, yeah. A glass of wine does does make it fun. You know, um, I have to say that you, you, you. One of the ways that you can do that is by involving people that you love. And so when I, I talk about my cooking experiences and I, I actually am up on lessons.com as well for people here in Vegas who are just looking to hire, you know, a private chef um, for, you know, a period of a few hours. It's really about picking the type of food that you like or picking the type of food that you're very curious about and you have no idea how it's made. So if you take something that's Korean, Thai inspired, something that's Indian and you think, okay, well, 
garam masala. What exactly is garam masala? Well, garam masala is a spice blend and it has different warm notes. It's like, how could I possibly use that in a way that is going to inspire me and make me excited? And it's not necessarily about the cooking per se. It is about the process of being someone with, you know, that you love or that you want to get to know better. You guys are in the cooking, you're in the kitchen together, you're talking, you're having fun. And let me tell you something. The best part of cooking is the relaxed part of cooking for me. We're not line chefs uh, in a professional kitchen where people are waiting for their dinner. When we're cooking for ourselves at home, the stress stays low because it's our timeline. I don't have to worry about getting a a meal out in 20 minutes. I want to keep my stress low. And maybe for for me, oftentimes that means what we call mise en place, right? Mise en place basically is you're doing all your prep work. You're chopping your onions, you're chopping your vegetables, you, you have your meat, you know, um, out of the refrigerator so it's coming to room temperature. And all of these different components are ways that you can keep your stress down so that you're not frenetic. Nobody, if you think about, oh, I'm going to have to clean this up later and I'm going to have to get all my ingredients and, oh, I got to go to the store. If you have all, all of your preparation ready, you're with someone you love, maybe you've got a glass of wine. Um, <laughs> it, it enables you to have that relaxation so that you can actually enjoy the process and, and set aside a couple of hours where it's just you and your ingredients and you're looking forward to making something, building up your hunger over a period of a few hours. And that, that's your, your big scene. That's your big reveal at the end is that you actually get to eat it and enjoy it with someone you love. Mm-hmm. And it should be calm. It should be should be fun, but 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 calm. But I can you see know? that family means a lot to you as well, and that's extremely important. But yeah. uh, I'm going to jump to the humor part of our podcast. <laughs> right? Um, a paid public a paid public service <laughs> announcement from Dave Cumberbatch. Go, Dave. <laughs> have Have you ever tried anything that just didn't come out right? Oh my goodness! Yes. Let's talk uh, I, about that. Let's have some fun let's on that. Talk, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. So um, one of my favorite types of potato chips is sour cream and onion potato chips. Okay. I've been eating them since the 80s. Loved them as a kid. Thought to myself on the mac and cheese. Notes we talked about Bunyakata mac and cheese. When I first started Dink Cuisine, I thought to myself, I'm going to make sour cream and onion potato chip topping to my mac and cheese. And it's going to be fabulous. I'm going to infuse, uh, I'm going to make a white cream sauce. I'm going to put tons of onion flavor in there. It's going to be spectacular. And I was tasting along the way, but like once I put the components together and I actually pulled it out of the oven and I thought I was being so brilliant, right? You know, you take your, you know, a mac and cheese has those little, that little crusty top on, on top. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's breadcrumbs, sometimes it's cheese. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to smash my, my potato chips and put them on top and it's going to bake in. It's going to be fantastic. I pulled that thing out and I tasted it <laughs> and it was, I don't want to say it was disgusting, but it was, it was not good. <laughs> not good. Like not at all. Not at all. It didn't come out exactly how I planned. And normally I'm pretty good. Like even when I have like a really wild idea, it'll come out like a, uh, um, I'll give you an idea that actually did turn out well. So I decided to take um, bulgogi beef, which is like a Korean style preparation for beef uh, and put them in empanadas. So 
bulgogi empanadas, when I, when I tried that, I thought, well, that's a really, really wacky idea. This is going to either come out really, really well or very badly. <laughs> that actually turned out well. Oh, and that's going to be, I'm having an event in Vegas Valley Winery, and that's actually going to be one of my appetizers that I'm serving as these bulgogi empanadas. But I'll tell you something, they don't, they don't all translate. You know, you think you come up and mashups are so big in cuisine, right? Everybody wants to do a mashup, right? How can you take something that doesn't look like it goes together and try to smash it together? And everybody thinks that it always works. It does not. How did you turn that into a fun time? Well, I, I will say that I, I do have the type of household where I can laugh at myself. Right. Uh, and when I when I ask my husband to taste something, and he's like, uh, "I don't, I don't know," you know, <laughs> if I don't get a, if I don't get a, like a mm and a nod, then I'm like, "Okay, it's nothing personal." So you right. you have to. One of the ways that I do that is by understanding that um, number one, everybody's a critic, right? So especially on social media. You know, we talked about Bunyakata earlier, which is the treasure of Northern Italy and the treasure of Piedmont. I, I belong to a, a, a group on Facebook and a, uh, for Italians and basically was accused of butchering, you know, the pride and joy of nor- Northern Italy. And how could I do something like turn it into mac and cheese? Um, so, you know, hey, I don't take it personally. It's like that's his personal opinion. So I think if, if you have like a just a pure heart and you try to do your best and you realize, Hey, next time I might be, ex- be able to execute this better if I made these tweaks because everybody's trying to get better. So um, that's one of the ways I keep it light in the kitchen is by realizing, hey, not everybody's going to like everything. Almost everybody's a critic, even my biggest fans like my husband. Um, but if, if I'm able to poke fun at myself and realize that right. I didn't go so well and I can do better next time is that I'm always trying to improve and do better. That's the point. That's what makes it fun and, yeah. and that I, it doesn't bring me down. Sounds like a TikTok moment, right? <laughs> yeah. I think I need to get more active on TikTok. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Michael's laughing. Right. He's just having fun or expense. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Somebody's got. Uh, does your husband help you cook, or do you just kind of keep him out of the kitchen? You know, uh, so we have. Um, I don't want to be fiscally inappropriate, but we have. You can. You can be. Uh, <laughs> he wants to build out a certain part of my website that he calls the hobo corner. Um, so it's fiscally inappropriate in reference to hobos. So no, no offense to hobos. Uh, but what my husband is amazing at is taking something um, out of the door of the refrigerator and creating something fabulous. When we uh, before when we first moved back to Vegas, we were um, renting in a, in a high rise. Uh, right right across from the strip and he literally i remember we had some sliced ham we had tortillas we had cheese we had pickles and he made a a basically a cuban sandwich in in a quesadilla form that became like the staple of our house for like the next six months um another example is uh i one of my friends convinced me to buy edamame fettuccine so Knowing that I, I love Italian food, she's like, okay, so these are these are fettuccine noodles that are made purely from edamame, soy, soy edamame. And I made them and I made a sauce and I thought I was going to be all clever because I put essentially an Alfredo sauce on there. Well, it tasted terrible. So Mark comes along and he, he pulls out some eel sauce from, from the refrigerator door, pours some eel sauce on it. <laughs> 
And it was one of the best things that either one of us had ever tasted. And I literally have that in my fridge right now. So his point was, why are you trying to make an edamame product taste like Italian food? Because what you need to do is make it taste like what it's supposed to be and what it is, which is edamame. He goes, infuse some Asian flavors in there. He goes, that's what you do when you make me edamame with you know, your, your, ses- your sesame oil and your ginger and your garlic. He said, do the same thing for this. I'm like, oh, you know. So long-winded answer to your question, but he's an excellent cook. Uh, and he also has very practical solutions. When I try to over-engineer something, he's always the one that brings me back down and says, just put some eel sauce on it. That tastes great. And See, it, that, that, right. that, that's your lawyer training coming in. <laughs> that's my lawyer training. I know. I know. I know. I, have a, I know. I have a crazy question. Does it, does it degrade the authenticity if you purchase the um, Alfredo sauce as opposed to making your own Alfredo sauce? No, no, no. There are no rules. There are no rules. And I believe in shortcuts. I believe in, um, and and I'll use paste as an example. So earlier in the conversation, I mentioned garlic paste and chovy paste. There are pastes, and Amoria is is actually one of my sponsors. I absolutely love them. they have pastes that, that have pesto in them, um, chili paste. Um, so obviously anchovy, garlic. People think that just because I'm Italian, I love garlic. I do not. I do not like fresh garlic. I do not like raw garlic. I love garlic paste. All, most of my recipes have garlic paste. And the reason why is because it is, um, it is literally a, a paste that it incorporates so much more evenly and easily into food and disintegrates. If I bite down on a piece of raw garlic, it's going to ruin the rest of my meal for me. I, I dislike it that much. Wow. And um, shortcuts are good. Packaged foods are good. Um, if they bring you joy and if, they, if you are able to transform them into something that you feel is healthy and that you want to eat. There is absolutely nothing wrong with jarred marinara sauce, jarred, jarred Alfredo sauce. There are some tremendous um, and authentic uh, food manufacturers in the marketplace. Um, we have Amazon. We have so many more resources today. Um, healthy foods, authentic foods that we can use in our day-to-day cooking. Pesto, for example, if you buy a jarred pesto, or if you or you buy a, a more you know pesto pesto in a tube, you can put that into your salad dressing. You can have a pe- pesto ranch. You can make the ranch, but then you're adding a pesto in to make it a little bit more exciting. You can put pesto into your mayonnaise. Um, I think when, when you take products from the shelf and you realize that they can be used in uncommonly savory ways, it's really, really helpful because that gets you excited about cooking. So I say whatever gets you in the kitchen and whatever, yeah. <laughs> whatever is helping you make food, take those shortcuts. There's no shame in it whatsoever. No shame in that. Yeah. So, Michael, if you if you want to bake me a pie, um, you can get the Aunt Jemima. You can tell me you created it. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> Dave, have have you seen that movie, The Help? No. With Viola Davis and um, um, what's the other girl's name? Anyway, they made a pie. <laughs> And let's just say it was not desirable because it had something <laughs> posing as chocolate in the pie because she was getting mad at her uh, uh, um, oh. 
uh, <laughs> white landlord lady in the show. So that's the pie you'll get from me. Uh, <laughs> 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 As you can tell, I'm not the cook. Dave is actually a good cook. I'm not. Um, I have a question for you, though, and this actually came about because I was watching Stanley Tucci's special on CNN about Italy. Yeah, great show. And and my girlfriend is from Spain. And so she spends a lot of time looking around here in Vegas for meats that are familiar to the Valencia region of Spain, which is where she's from. Does Mm. I'm not a rabbit fan, and I saw one of Stanley Tucci's episodes, and it was rabbit, 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 rabbit over and over again. Are there Mm -hmm. some meats that are unique to Italy and especially the northern part of Italy where you specialize with some of your cuisine? Um, I would say that there there are um, there are different proteins that you find in uh, different parts of Italy uh, and and I Lydia Bastianich, I'm, I'm one of her biggest fans and of course she has restaurants here in town in, in, in Vegas I remember an episode of um, one of her TV shows where she went to a cattle producing region in Italy. And I'm almost positive it was central Italy, um, possibly a little bit farther south, that were known for their beef. It's almost like um, Argentina when you know, you know, the, 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 I think that they have the gauchos, right? So, the, yeah, yes. they've got certain areas of Argentina that are, um, Argentina is very, very big for, for beef. Um, in Italy, you know, there, cucina povera is, um, refers to peasant food and um, people who are, you know, um, financially underrepresented, they don't necessarily have very much money. And over the past, you know, couple of centuries, cucina povera was something more almost, you know, to be ashamed of. Well, now when we think about rustic Italian cuisine, Tuscan Italian cuisine, we think of, you know, um, breads, vegetables, zucchini. We think of uh, the tomatoes of Campania. We think much more of, I think, um, carbs and vegetables when we think of Italy than we do, uh, you know, meat, traditional meat. But it's not so much that they don't necessarily have, you know, um, meat production in, in Italy. It's about the fact that because of the expense of meat, it's surrounded by vegetables and it's surrounded by carbohydrates like breads and pastas. So I don't necessarily claim to be an authority of the different types of meats that are all throughout the regions of Italy. But what I will tell you is that from a vegetarian perspective, I I think that it's very easy to embrace the foods of Italy because of all the things that surround, you know, traditional proteins, if that makes sense. So um, it, it's very true. It, I, and I did see that episode where uh, the, the woman that Stanley was watching from afar and she's trying to catch the rabbit and all of a sudden it ends up in the pot, right? So, yes, exactly. Uh, so yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. You, you nailed what I saw. All right, we're going to get to some of the fun. The, well, let me tra- re- rephrase that. It's not the fun part. This the sweet tooth part of this conversation you have got a whole host of, of desserts on, on your platform. And, you know, normally when you think of desserts in Italy, you think the first thing that pops into your mind from watching mob movies is cannolis. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you've got a cannoli recipe here on your platform. I do. I do. So um, I will be the first to admit, 
again, poking fun of myself, uh, that I am not an amazing baker. Uh, I like to take shortcuts, particularly when it comes to my dessert. So my first cannoli riff uh, is cannoli brownies. And I took box brownie mix, made brownies, and I essentially made the frosting with the filling that you would find in cannolis. So I took ricotta, I essentially made almost like a whipped cream out of that, you know, by whipping in whole cream and, you know, different flavors like um, I have almond syrup uh, in, in there. Uh, it's like, um, uh, I'm sorry, not almond syrup, almond extract. Uh, I put chocolate, mini chocolate chips on it. I put cherries on top. And then what I use is store-bought fried wontons to mimic the shell of the cannoli. And I, I sprinkle those on top. It is one of the most, it's it's a rich dessert that is fantastic for chocolate lovers. But the best part about it is that the lift is very, very low. If you're not a professional baker, if you don't really love baking, most of the heavy lifting is through the box mix from your brownies. And then you're pretty much disassembling from there. Um, People go crazy for it. But I'll tell you, one of the things that uh, I've done recently is, is a cannoli tiramisu. The tiramisu, uh, a lot of people are familiar. You take lady fingers, you dip them in espresso, you you have you know the whipped cream and stuff in between. Tiramisu is, is a famous Italian dessert, probably one of my least favorite desserts of all time. But my husband likes it. So I had to reinvent it somehow. So I made cannoli tiramisu. So I smashed those two things together. And what I did was I took uh, cherry liqueur. So there's a Luxardo is a famous famous brand of, of cherries and also cherry liqueur straight from Italy. So I dipped the lady fingers instead of an, an espresso. I dipped them in the cherry liqueur, and then I took pistachios. I took um, ricotta filling. I took some half and half and whipped cream, and I that's how I made the layers with those beautiful Luxardo Italian cherries in between finely chopped pistachios and then I, I put it in the fridge and it's tremendous. So yeah. So two, two examples of cannoli desserts that aren't cannolis at all. <laughs> oh, gotcha. And I, I'm assuming you don't have dessert at the end of every meal. No, uh-uh. <laughs> no, I hardly ever have dessert. I uh, honestly, I hardly ever have dessert. I do it because people love desserts. I'm doing that the giving part of my nature. I do that more for other people than myself. But I'm the descendant of two people with a tremendous sweet tooth, my own mother and my grandmother. After oh, yeah? every meal, my grandmother would always hand me this humongous bowl of ice cream or a big piece of cake. And my mom would get mad at her and then take it from me and eat it herself. <laughs> uh, you, were yeah. kind, you were kind enough to invite me to an event by the time this podcast airs, the um, event will have occurred. But you were kind enough to invite me. And one of the uh, things I wanted to ask you was it has to do with pairing wines with some of your foods. Yeah. I am not, and I'm going to say this as loud as I can, I am not a wine connoisseur to that level to where I can discern. And I'm going to give you a bad story about it, and then you can explain how your approach is. I went to the Grand Cayman. Um, probably 10 years ago now, Grand Caymans. They invited me down as a, as a travel writer and a journalist and a TV producer all wrapped into one. And I remember they were so busy trying to impress me that every single night we were there, they whipped out a seven-course meal and each course had its own wine. By the third day, I was so damn tired of wine. I walked up to the maitre d' and I said, what is the most expensive uh, um, 
bottle of rum that you have here. And he, <laughs> he, ra- he rattled off something. So he went back and got the sommelier and he says, do not serve this man any more wine. Just pour him about three fingers full of that rum in a glass and leave it on his table. And I looked at the sommelier and I said, if you bring anything else to me, I'm going to take that bottle and beat your ass with it. That's what I told him to his face. He looked at me and says, <laughs> oh, Mr. Benner, we're so sorry. I said, I have, I've had like, what, 18 bottles, different versions of wine at that point, And they started to blur after. I couldn't figure it out. So now I right. need your help. Tell me how to make this work so I don't get so offended with all that wine. <laughs> Well, you know, I, I will say that there, um, there is a way to do it where you can actually stay sane and you can actually enjoy it. And people make fun of, uh, they call it tweezer food, right? So, you know, high society chefs, they're making really teeny tiny portions and, you know, there's a wine pairing with every single course. Yeah. But one of the ways that it's actually palatable and enjoyable is when the pour is small. And the dish is small, so that by the time you get through, you remember what you've eaten, <laughs> and you can you can differentiate between the flavors, right? So, and there is an art to that. And I um, I love wine, but I wouldn't call myself an expert in pairing. Um, that's why I partner with you know Vegas Valley Winery and other wineries uh, throughout the country, is because I like when they taste my food and they are inspired about their wines that they know and love and how to present those in a way that's going to be meaningful to their clients, to their guests, right? Um, but I, I would say to you, Michael, that as you're, as you're in those situations, even if you're presented with a plate that is relatively large or a portion is relatively large, is to, to savor microbites. And to taste the food, you taste the wine, and you you realize that when you have expert sommeliers who are really trying to evoke an experience that is unique, um, that those flavor notes, if if you're actually patient with it and you're taking your time and you don't overeat, you don't allow yourself to overeat, even though the chef is maybe presenting you with a, a great deal of food, that you you kind of you kind of have to take a step back and just be really in the moment with that pairing. Um, and that's when it becomes fun for me. That's, that's how I like to do it. But I do tend to go to places with the tweezer food and I love that. <laughs> <laughs> and Michael, you just, no. let, you, you just let the entire world know that you don't know the difference between a Chardonnay and a Moscato. Well, that part I do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I mean, and don't get me wrong. The food that I ate was just, Mm, outstanding it was really yeah. really good food and even the wines for like the first day i was at my palate was for some reason was able to distinguish the wine flavors but when day two rolled around it started to blur and by the time day three yeah. arrived i was sick of it you know enough but yeah but i did not do what you just advised which is the smaller portion bites i didn't do that you know yeah. i was yeah i was running six yeah. miles a day back then thought i could eat everything and anything and yeah it got it got me yeah um, you get saturated. You can't. And, and those types of experiences, number one, I mean, and I've never been in a position where I've had to do that more than one day in a row. <laughs> um, but you, you do get saturated and you get to a point where and I think those experiences are meant to be unique. They're not meant to be everyday experiences. I think you have right. to have a very clear head when you when you when you do those sorts of things. And, um, you know, unfortunately, when the wine's flowing and if you've had a couple cocktails beforehand, you know, you're you're in a state where you're just, you know, not really able to have the clarity. So yeah, I think it's important to, if you really, if it's about the food, you have to take a step back and, you know, have the wine be secondary. But then again, I'm, 
I'm a food personality. I'm not a wine personality. So (laughs) (laughs) don't tell that to my wine friend. (laughs) (laughs) My lips are sealed to the thousands of people listening to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. There we go. (laughs) (laughs) Michael. Do you, um, in let's let's pretend we're either in a pre-pandemic world or maybe in the post-pandemic world. You know, we do we talk a lot about travel on this show. Um, mm-hmm. Do you get a chance to travel uh, outside of the confines of the U.S. and and you know get some international uh, traveling in? Um, I really I really have not had that luxury, and I, um, I'll tell you, it's something that I'm looking forward to. You know, my husband and I um, are hoping to retire. You know, in, in the next few years. And, um, I, he's never been to Italy. So my first order of business is to bring him to Italy. Uh, I know that he's going to love Florence. I know that he's going to love Tuscany and, you know, wine tasting in particular is so different abroad. You know, here in the U S when we think of wine tasting, we're going to a different place every half hour, 45 minutes. Because a lot of us have wineries that when we go to a specific region and it doesn't have to be Napa, it could be, you know, Pastor Robles, which is just so hot right now in the, in, in California, um, Sonoma, you know, you're bouncing around from winery to winery because there are so many, yeah. um, and you just, you just get like in the zone and you just want to bounce from place to place. Um, one of the things I love about traveling abroad is that it's, you go to one place and it's an entire experience for a day. They cook for you. Um, and that is what I, I love about international travel in particular, particularly Italy. And I know I'm a little bit biased in that regard, but, um, I am looking forward to in our retirement, being able to visit some other places that I've never been, um, the UK in particular, um, I've been to England, but I've, I, I would really love to go to Ireland. Um, I'd love to go to Wales and, uh, there's other, you know, parts that, um, uh, of the world that I, I'm just dying to see in Egypt in particular, I'm dying to see Egypt actually. Uh, and to really get into that cuisine and see how they do things over there. <laughs> if you come to the Caribbean, because I spend a lot of time in the Caribbean, I promise I'll make you my Caribbean version of chicken Alfredo fettuccine. Really? Wow, that sounds very interesting. I'm intrigued. Is there scotch bonnets in there? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> just, just, just be prepared, since he is from Barbados, just be prepared to drink copious amounts of rum with that meal. I love that. I love that. Yeah. Well, we should talk about that because my next concept for a cookbook is, um, so the the little phrase that I'm, I might be uh, copywriting is, Two in the hole, one in the bowl. So I make that's good. Uh, I like that. That's catchy. Yeah. I make three cocktails. So if one of the one of, in my Italian cookbook for two, if you look at my Manhattan ribs, right? That's that's the first recipe I came up with this concept. You make three Manhattan. You each drink one because it's recipes for two. So one for you, one for whoever you're with, and the third one goes into my Manhattan barbecue sauce. So you make a barbecue barbecue sauce that's bourbon based with with the Manhattan. Your third Manhattan. Um, but with rum, one of the ones I want to do is, uh, mojito. And with mojito, I want to use, of course, I know that's not necessarily from Barbados, but, but, uh, using that with lamb chops. So the whole thing of mint and lamb, so you're drinking your two mojitos and I'm going to repurpose the third mojito and make a sauce for the lamb that's mint based. You know, that's, that's, that's fantastic. 
That's great. All yeah. right, so I, I, yeah. I see I have a, a relationship going here, so I'm going <laughs> to pair you two together and invite people <laughs> over, and we'll make that work. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, that's that, good. I, I like that. Um, yeah. In in um in the few moments we have left, give us uh the event that you're having. Like I said, it'll be over by uh by the time this podcast comes out, but are you going to host other events like that and tell people about the event that you are hosting that I've been invited to? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, one of the things that I really love to do is to, uh, partner with spirits companies, with wine companies, even with, you know, corporations here in town, um, to pair my food with either, you know, wines or cocktails or artisanal spirits. And essentially create experiences for groups of people. And it could be corporate events. It could be um, just events for the general public to come and buy tickets to, to be able to experience food and, and have it paired with wines, expertly paired with, with wines and different types of drinks. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a post pandemic, I think, or as we're, as we're making our way into it. And you, you mentioned earlier, Michael, that Vegas is just absolutely booming. I mean, everybody is dying to come here. Everybody wants to come have fun. Everybody wants to have different experiences, particularly for the locals. I think it's very important to draw us all out, to bring us together as a community. And food is a perfect way to do that. Um, there are so many great businesses here in town. There are so many great charities to get involved with. Um, so one of the ways that I want to get involved here and, and have more events is to uh, start doing some fundraising, start pairing uh, with other organizations that are looking to raise money for good causes. Um, the people here in this town have been hit particularly hard because, you know, most of the city was unemployed um, for a significant period of time. How can we use food and things that people love in order to give back and raise money? Um, so that's one of the things I'd really love to do um, here, in, here in Vegas in particular, but in other parts of the country as well. I'm certainly open to that. Give me your macro view of... Uh restaurants in general uh, as regards to the COVID? And, and let me preface this so you kind of see where I'm coming from. I saw where Guy Fieri was really angry with the federal government for not providing more funds to bail out the restaurateurs and helping them get through COVID. They spent all this money on airlines, but yet the restaurateurs, uh, you know, employed 10 times what the airlines do. And I, you know, living here in Vegas, you know, we're both living here in Las Vegas. We see the damage to these restaurants. There's restaurants we used to go to that are out of business and they're not coming back because what people don't, what people don't fail to understand is why you may go to a restaurant and get a, a great meal. They operate on thin profit margin. Yeah. They're, they're not breaking the bank. Uh, give, give me your worldview, I guess, as it pertains to that, or at least your Vegas view. I, I will say that uh, there are the, Vegas is, is just a gigantic community. And people think of Vegas, particularly if they're not from the area, they think of the Strip, right? But there are so many local businesses here, particularly where, where I am in the Southwest, there are a lot of Asian-inspired restaurants. And they are all spectacular. They are all affordable. And um, I, I think what it comes down to is that there are people who like to cook at home and there are people who like to be out. And I would think that, um, and, and for someone such as myself, I love to cook. I love to, I love to be home. I love to be in my kitchen and cook. But I think that we can take a bit of our inspiration um, from our, our local chefs and from our, our local restaurants and local businesses, and that there's balance of both. 
and that as consumers, that we want to be able to support the people that are our friends and neighbors. You know, these are restaurant owners that happen to live in our neighborhoods that need our support. And if we can help them just by either going on social media, liking their posts, if they're not on social media, how can we encourage them to broaden their business and broaden their reach um, by, you know, just letting them know, hey, all you need is a YouTube channel. It's free. All you have to do is just film yourself doing, you know, 30 minute or 30 second videos here and there. Get on TikTok, get on Instagram. Um, helping people who may not necessarily have a social media presence here in, in the restaurant business and helping them understand how we, you know, they might be able to broaden their reach if they tried some different things. I think as business owners, um, it's very easy to become isolated and, and have despair and lose hope. Because things are bad, um, so the, the businesses that and the restaurants that were able to to survive, they still are probably feeling a lot of the effects and a lot of the stress. How can you sort of go in, maybe order a couple of things, maybe take some pictures? Um, if if they're not on social media, maybe you do that for them. You're you're tagging them. You're bringing awareness, you know, to their businesses. So I really think that there's little things that we can all do to support each other. Um, that, that will help bring us all forward, um, and, and past the pandemic. Um, hope yeah. that's helpful. Um, it, it I don't is. necessarily, I don't, I'm not trying to make that political by any way, shape or form. I'm not a political person. I think it's more just about being a, a good human. Being yeah. A good person. Yeah. I, I know when, when the pandemic hit here, we, we, uh, went out a lot and ordered food, you know, you know, where you can pick it up or they would deliver it to you just to help some of our friends who had restaurants here yeah. stay in business. And that, that mattered a lot. Um, yeah. That, and you made a perfect segue uh, uh, as we wrap up. Tell us about your YouTube channel. I watched a couple of videos uh, before this podcast started, but uh, what are your big plans for that channel? Oh my goodness. Well, I um, eventually, you know, later this summer and maybe even into the fall, I hope to pivot to some live events on YouTube. Um, so streaming um, and having, you know, local musicians, local entertainers here in Vegas, um, maybe even some non-local from Los Angeles uh, come in, do guest spots, pick uh, different types of foods and get super creative, you know, have some laughs in the kitchen. Um, right now, uh, what I'm basically doing is I have different types of videos that range from 15 seconds to three minutes. Um, sometimes I am uh, preparing a dish. Um, you know, something from my website that I think people might enjoy. I also uh, like to have videos on different types of tools and different types of products that people might not necessarily be familiar with. Um, some people turn into my videos because they're interested in learning how to cook. And some people aren't interested in shortcuts. So to Dave's uh, your earlier question, is it okay to use shortcuts, right? What are some tools that I could use? Because I really don't like to be in the kitchen. So whatever gets me in and out of there fast, um, so different types of shortcuts, techniques, tools, tips, uh, those sorts of things too, uh, is what I really love to do in YouTube. So I want to be in the kitchen today filming. So thanks for reminding me that I've, I'm going to have to load up a lot more content today. <laughs> <laughs> more to do. You'll see this shirt on YouTube soon. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> well, on that note, um, uh, you, you said uh, you had a new cookbook coming out. You said October. You have a title for it yet? Uh, you know, the, the, the publisher is still working with the title, but it is going to be along the lines of vegetarian, uh, ketogenic cookbook for beginners. So it's specifically to, to, uh, people who haven't necessarily been doing a lot of cooking who are interested in keto and vegetarian. So 
Nice. Uh, yeah, 75 recipes for uh, for beginners, keto, vegetarian, something along those lines. Can't necessarily share that yet, even if I did know the title. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I know how that works, by the way. You know, when you when you get an acting job and they don't let you talk about the movie, you spend a year acting That's in until right. it comes out. Yeah, I get that. Um, <laughs> right. Well, um, right, right, right. Yeah, Alicia, thanks so much for doing this. Her book is called My Italian Cookbook for Two. It is on Amazon. It will also be on our website in our store. So you could uh, uh, learn a lot about Italian cooking and uh, what, what do you call it? Dink Cuisine, which is also her website, dinkcuisine.com. That's right. So we will be promoting all of that uh, with Alicia as well. So Alicia, thank you so much for joining us on TripCast 360. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. Yeah, please follow me on social media, on Instagram at Dink Cuisine. Follow my YouTube channel. I'm on Twitter, Dink Cuisine. I uh, would love to engage with all of you. And thank you so much, uh, Michael. Looking forward to meeting you uh, in person, hopefully at the event if you get out. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, you, you said that like a true media professional, by the way. You got the promo in without me having the promo. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. All right. On behalf of my dear friend, Dave Cumberbatch, this is uh, Michael Gordon-Bennett saying so long. And we'll see you next week on another edition of TripCast 360.